If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, let me give you the rundown. Basically, it's the easiest way to make a podcast, and everything you need is all in one place, and here's how it works. Anchor lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup's like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to the most popular listening platforms, including Spotify, with a single tap. Anchor is also the only place you can publish a video podcast to Spotify. With Anchor, creators can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Long before Daniel Boone blazed the wilderness road to Kentucky or fought in the Revolutionary War, he was given a very important gift, a gift that would help shape himself and his legend, and a gift that he in turn would use to shape the United States. The South is full of history, extraordinary tales of questionable characters, outlaws, heroes, and thought-provoking narratives passed down from generation to generation like grandma's recipes. These real-life stories and exaggerations of fiction have helped shape the South and have created a larger-than-life accounts of legend. Each week, we will uncover fun facts of historical events, interesting places, famous people, and everything in between from all around the South. Subscribe now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, YouTube, or your favorite podcast listening app to listen to the show for free. So grab your sweet tea, fried green tomatoes, and pull up a chair as we uncover little-known facts about the uncommon history of the South. Hello and welcome to Uncommon History of the South. I'm Brian. And I'm Harold. Harold, before we get into our podcast, guess what? I've got a couple of updates. All righty. So we now have our very own store. So folks that follow the page or follow our podcast. Will I get milk and bread? And no, uh, but you can get T-shirts. You can get uh, coffee car, mugs. Car parts? No car parts. I know you need those. Antiques? No antiques, but if they, they're going to be collector's items oh, one okay. day, though. Oh, okay. We're, so you can get yeah. mugs and, and shirts and hoodies and different things. And uh, basically all you have to do is just... Follow our link tree, which is always our, our link that we put at the top of our show notes. Or you could just Google or Google link tree uncommon history, and it'll pull you right up to the page to our store. And if you go on to the store from May the 27th until June the 1st, 2021, you get a 10% discount. Yeah. So the first people that go on there and... Does that beat me too? Yes. Oh, Okay. Uh, anybody that goes on there, all you have to do is when the, use the code SUMMER21 uh, when you check out. SUMMER21. That's right. And you will receive 10% off your inter- entire purchase. Yeah, I'm going to get off here and run the computer. Well, we, I tell you, I'm gonna have, my wife was looking at it, and I'm afraid this is going to be expensive yeah, for me. Could be. <laughs> yeah, could be. I bet what's... we'll have mugs and all kinds of stuff. Oh, around. I'm sure. We, yeah. I'm sure. But, um, and then also, don't forget, all of our links are in one place, and that is uh, Linktree, Uncommon History. That'll take you, if you want to listen to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, has all of our social media accounts on there as well, uh, and it also has a store link. So, Harold, that's all I have. What did you have? Well, uh, I want to give a couple shout-outs to some folks that have supported us. Uh, My friend Jason Gatliff with... uh, uh, muzzleloader magazine now muzzleloader magazine nationwide magazine yes uh-huh yes and i see jason at a lot of shows and know him well he's, a, he's it's a great magazine 
it's going to fit perfectly in with the topic we're going to do tonight. And uh, I just uh, had a lot of people ask me to do this, so I did. And uh, he's a big uh, follower of us and helped promote us in his magazine. And we want everybody to uh, support him as much as possible. If you're, if you're interested in history and, and living history, if you like to hunt with uh, primitive weapons, uh, if you like to understand that world, that is the publication. He has, so it's he the has premier publication. Wonderful art. There. It's beautiful, beautiful artwork in it. Uh, it's just a great magazine. The other thing is there's a little restaurant in Gravel Switch, Kentucky, where John Dillinger robbed the bank. It's right across the street, right? Right from across the, bank the street from be. where the old bank was, Gravel Switch Station Restaurant. By the way, the old building that uh, John Dillinger worked in, that Shaheen owned, yeah. uh, is still standing. So you yep. can see that when you're there. And uh, they added to their Facebook page, and we want to thank them for that. And let me tell you, my wife and I, we go down there all the time. Well, we eat there with you all, yes. but you all eat there a lot more we than we there do. We a lot. Because it's closer to... for you. Exactly. And they've added some really old pictures on the walls now of, of the old bank that Dillinger robbed and other scenes around that area. And it's just a really neat, the food is good. If you love great home cooking, this is a place to go. It's stuff like your grandmother used to make. Exactly, exactly. Well, and uh, So where you want to start out at? Uh, it's well, Day in Kentucky History. What yes. happened today? Well, May the 28th, 1925, Mary Brickenwich founded the Kentucky Committee for Mothers and Babies, which became the Frontier Nursing Service. And uh, in 1961, the world's first Cinemera movie. Do you know what it was, Brian? I have it downstairs, and I've watched it many times. First Cinemera? What's Cinemera? I'm, I, I, I thought it would be cinematic, but it's Cinemera, and I'm not sure what that term means. I should was, know this. But it was part of it was shot in Smithland, Kentucky. Really? Give you a hint. In Livingston County. I have no idea. Star Jimmy Stewart and Deborah Reynolds, or Debbie Reynolds. And many of the Smithland folks lived in Smithland, Kentucky, were in there. It was called How the West Was Won. <laughs> I never would have guessed that. Did one. you have you seen it? It's an old movie. It's I been around know. a while. Well, it was done in nineteen sixty one. But anyway, nineteen seventy seven the Well some of us weren't born in sixty one, so well uh, <laughs> <laughs> You still go back and watch movies? Yes, I do like old movies. I was little, but I... I <laughs> 1977, the Beverly Hills Supper Club fire. It was a tragic uh, thing that happened, and, and I think it was 165 people uh, died, in the, or, and more than 200 were injured. And that and was on the Kentucky side of yes, the Ohio River, right? Yes, there between Cincinnati and... If there's a good thing that can come out of a tragedy, I guess our modern fire... Uh, regulations and laws have changed dramatically after that to make buildings more safer, sprinkler systems, exits, all those type of things came from it. Um, May 29th, 1777, Fanny Calloway became the first child born in Kentucky. Uh, the parents who were married here, and I think she was, uh, I believe that happened in Harrodsburg, Kentucky. It was Harrodsburg or Boonesboro, one or the other, but it was Fanny Calloway was the first child born in Kentucky. Wow. 1862, now this is close, near and dear to those of us in Boyle County, Kentucky. General Jeremiah Boyle was appointed military governor of Kentucky by President Lincoln. He placed Kentucky under martial law, and because of the activities of General John Hunt Morgan, uh, because of the activities of John Hunt Morgan is why he did that, uh, Boyle was in 
the son of Chief Justice John Boyle, whom Boyle County was named. And in 1955, the Shriners Children's Hospital opened in Lexington. So those are what's happening today in Kentucky history. All right, so what are we going to do our podcast on tonight? Well, I have some friends in the Kentucky rifle world that have asked me, said, why don't you do a podcast on the Kentucky rifle? And I said, well, uh, we will do that. I said, it's such a a visual thing that it's going to be a little bit of a challenge to describe it to folks. And, uh, uh, Brian, I told you when I started uh, this idea, I said, uh, I'm going to try to make this broad and – uh, not too deep for some, and then I'm going to delve deep into some areas of it for those that are. Well, I think our listeners should know that you have a lot of, I know you don't like to be called an expert, but you have a lot of experience and knowledge in the Kentucky rifles, long rifles. Kind of just tell us a little bit about, about your history or, or how did you fall in love with it? What started you on the path? Well, I, I, I really think, I, th- I think, it's, I had some folks that were around me that, that hunted with muzzleloading rifles when I was young. And a friend of mine, Nicky Pentagraph, I think he was the first one that showed me how to load one. And I think the Daniel Boone TV series, uh, you'd be surprised how that a lot of the people that I know were influenced by that. Like I said before, and we've talked about that show before, as hokey as it was today, the way we look at it, it still was the thing that inspired a lot of us. Uh, our love of history, and we're going to talk about the Kentucky rifles, and we're going to get into a lot of aspects of the rifle. But uh, but you've rebuilt and built a lot of these yes, rifles uh-huh. over the years yes, too, uh-huh. right? So yeah, and uh, I started when I was probably twelve or thirteen years old, and still doing it to this day. But uh, and and you know, I really I have to be honest with everybody, and I talk to I really do not feel like that I know that much. Because, Brian, you have to have some knowledge to know what you don't know. And there, there's there's just so – the answers for this stuff uh, is hard to find. Uh, yeah, we know some about some of it, but there's a lot, so much we don't know. So it, that's what really keeps me going is this drive to learn more. And and uh, But the, the rifle started, it, you know, it wasn't in America. That's the first thing I would say to anyone. Uh, the rifle wasn't invented in America. Uh, we have to go all the way back to medieval times. Uh, the rifle had evolved over time. It's a, it's a bunch of ideas and crafts that came together long before America was America to, to have what we have today. By the way, the Kentucky rifle is made and used more today than it ever has in history. Does that surprise you? Yes. Well, there's literally hundreds, maybe thousands of organizations, shooting clubs, suppliers, makers. We'll talk more about that later. But there is a lot of interest in the Kentucky rifle. Um, when, When we start thinking about how it evolved, you know, the crossbow evolved from the longbow. Somebody thought to put a stock on it. And the bow, it would give it more stability, and you placed an arrow on it, and you throwed it with the bow. Right. It was a short burst of power, and it didn't have the range a longbow had, but it had the knockdown power and the quickness, short range. Then somebody invented the stone bow, 
You ever heard of a stone bow? No, that's a new one on me. Well, it's it's the same thing with a crossbow, but they threw a stone, and they had a little hood over it, and it projected the stone. So it was kind of like a fancy slingshot. Right. <laughs> then that evolved, and then cannon powder, or excuse me, gun powder was invented by the Chinese, you know, like in the ninth century. So that had been around a while. But in medieval Europe, somebody got the bright idea to put gunpowder in that stock on a tube and shoot it out of there. Okay. So then that started a whole evolution of how shoulder weapons were fired. Then they began to experiment with different ways to uh, ignite that powder charge. And I won't bore everybody with all these details, but the, the, the hand cannon was was made around 1400, which was basically you lit it with a, with some type of match. Right. Okay. Or Then they went to a fuse lock, which you had a fuse that you drop down on the pan and set, the, set it off. And then the wheel lock was invented, and that was a friction wheel that ground against a piece of flint. And then that evolved into the flint lock, which was um, or originated about 1620. Okay, the, the, the wheel lock was from the mid-1550s. Uh, the fuse lock was in the early 1500s. So then also the crossbow gave us technology for triggers. And the proper really word for that is trickers, T-R-I-C-K-E-R-S. But we call it today triggers. Well, set triggers are two triggers. One has a spring loaded, and you can adjust it, the second trigger, to where you set the first one and the second one. You can just barely touch it, and it'll go off. It takes very little pull so that you can aim more accurately. And so that evolved from crossbow technology. Now, in Europe, the rifle started to evolve. The, the rifling itself... Um, you know, I think it started like in the early 1600s when they when they figured out how to rifle, put grooves in a barrel that would make the ball spin, which gave it more accuracy. So that's that's rifling. That's what that means is is the rifling in a barrel. So the Germans in that region. Now Germany wasn't Germany then, but you had um, G- Germanic lands: Bavaria, Austria, uh, Bohemia, Saxony, Brandenburg, the Rhine Valley. All that area in the 16s and 1700s was owned by a series of dukedoms. And each castle had its own armor, had its own gun makers. Now, Brian, we had some great craftsmen here in America in the 1700s that made some beautiful Kentucky rifles. But there has nothing ever been made to the high degree of art that the German region gun makers did, the European gun makers. They took it to a level that it's never been, before, never was since, never has been done like that. Uh, names like Casper Zellner, Johannes Nyreiter, Joseph Kuchenreuter, Joseph Frey, people like that. These are some of the gun makers that that uh, that took the took it to a highest possible level of art. So they were true masters of their craft. Yes. Uh-huh. Now, let's th- see. Here's here's what Kentucky rifle collectors th- today are. They're really collectors of art. Okay. So I know that people don't think of a Kentucky rifle as art. But when you're talking about the earliest Kentucky rifles made in America, you're talking about an art and the way they're decorated. And it all has a story. And it all has a, 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 a roots that run very deep. Um, with the movement in Europe, with the 
Reformation, that inspired an art movement like we've never seen before, and I think we'll probably never see again. Uh, the genius of some of these people was tremendous. I mean, it was unbelievable. And it wasn't just in objects. It was in art and music. Uh, it was in dance. It was in all types of, of art. Now, one of the aspects of the art that affects the Kentucky rifle, the earliest one, from the 1500s to the 1600s, is the Baroque period. Okay. So now I can get over my head real quick here. I want our listeners to know that I'm not an art connoisseur. I, do, I understand I've studied art on these rifles, and, I, and I've understood where it comes from. But um, you get a little bit beyond that, and you start to lose me really quick. But um, Baroque art, it, it incorporates um, animals, plants, human faces. Um, it is a, it is it's Baroque means outside the bounds of the art that was produced before then. So it's kind of out there. And you see some grotesque faces and you see plant forms and, and different types of things incorporated into that. Well, that, believe it or not, ended up on long rifles. Now, in Germany, they were called Jaeger, which means hunting rifle. The Jaeger gun was a short version of a Kentucky rifle. Most of them were big calibers, you know, 50, 60 caliber. Um, only the wealthy landowners had uh, firearms because nobody else had land. You couldn't hunt. Right. So they, this, this uh, if you could see one of those today, you would see something from the 16 or 1700s made. They're extremely high-quality art, like nothing you've seen produced here in America. Um, the second period of art is the Rococo period, which um, has more symmetry and balance. You kind of do away with the uh, art of plants and faces and human forms and those things. And the basic element of Rococo art is the sea scroll or just the common sea. And that combination of the sea scroll and the way they used it on the rifle uh, is absolutely amazing. You, you would be amazed at so many ways that you can use the basic fundamental art form of the sea scroll And it was used on a lot, just about exclusively all of the early Kentucky rifles. And that, of course, evolved from the German rifle. So we had these European gunsmiths that achieved this high level of art, but a lot of them, uh, they moved around a lot. And I put up a map one time of, of the European region and I took some of George Shumway's, who we'll talk about more later's book. He did a book on Jaeger rifles, and I, I put a pin in every town that the, the gunsmith worked, and so you got these clusters around Europe of these different schools or areas that they produced these really fine works of art, and how distinctive they looked, and so that became began to start of regionalism in the Kentucky rifle. Well. Uh, these guys came to America. Um, now, I'll talk a little bit about the, the Moravian gunsmakers. Uh, there was a, a group from Moravia, from which now the Czech Republic in the early 1700s, Count uh, Zinzendorf financed missions around the world. Now, art is always moved because of mission activity. Um, 
a lot of the art that has spread into South America and into America and everything came from the uh, uh, missionaries that brought that tradition with them from Europe. And there was two areas in, in America where these gunsmiths came, uh, primarily to start with. Now, it was that changed later. But Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and Bethabra, North Carolina. These were two Moravian communities. And that's where we think is the best that we know the earliest Kentucky rifles were produced. Now, they probably didn't call them Kentucky rifles at that time. But the later generations had their roots in those two locations. Yes, and we're going to talk about how the rifle get its name, too. But um, the early gunsmith like uh, uh, Daniel Kleist, who was born in Europe in 1716, and he came to America in 1749. Andreas Albrecht, who was in Schul, Germany, in 1718 and was in America by 1750. And a guy named Valentine Beck, who was born in Schul in 1731, came to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, in 1761. And so we see these really Germanic influences in the early rifles made here in America. Now, the earliest rifle that we know of, that I've seen, um, was by Johannes Farber in Rockingham County, Virginia, and it's dated 1750. So I, I there may be some others. I, I haven't updated this lately. Um, that may have changed since I've, I've looked at it, but I think the earliest dated one we know of is about 1750. Now, where did the name come from? That's Well, first of all, let's back up a minute. Where did the name rifle come from or the Kentucky, Kentucky rifle? rifle? Okay, Kentucky rifle. Well, the frontier of Kentuck as the Indians called it, uh, may have evolved from Cain, Tuck. Um, you know, those rifles were made for the Western movement. Now, at that time, the West was Kentucky and Ohio, Tennessee, and anything, you know, over the mountains. Right. So for the Kentucky Territory, that name kind of stuck. But now we really don't have any written record of it until about the War of 1812 that we see it written. You know, in early, some of the early works, we don't see it. But there was a popular song wrote about the War of 1812 called The Hunters of Kentucky. And in that song, in a stanza, it talked about the hunters with their Kentucky rifles. And that's one of the first mentions of the two put together, as a, like the Bowie knife or whatever. Uh, that's the first time we really can see that they, those two terms were actually put together. And it's something that those of us that have fooled with them today just take for granted. Yeah. It's a term we've always used. So the rifle evolved uh, as it came to America. Now, um, as a young man, I went to Friendship, Indiana, to the National Muzzleloading Rifle Association shoot. And there was a gentleman there by the name of George Shumway. And George was quite a, uh, a, a, quite a talented and, and a very well-educated man. I think he was an oceanographer in California. And uh, he uh, got interested in the Conestoga wagon and the Kentucky rifle. <laughs> and uh, he came to Pennsylvania, near York, Pennsylvania. And he started studying Kentucky rifles and, and writing books and publishing books and photographing rifles. And at the National Muzzleloading Rifle Shoot, he had a booth and he would set up a little photography studio and with an old Crown Graphic Press camera and a handheld light, he would photograph some of the most wonderful works that's ever been done. And he did thousands of them. 
in wow. it for, for many years. And I was, I knew George, and when I was a young boy, I was very bashful, and I didn't really, I would stand and on a corner of his shop, I mean his uh, booth there, and I would watch him photograph, and I would listen to him as he explained to people what he was doing and what he was, you know, the significance of that particular piece or whatever. So I learned a lot by that, and eventually got to know him real well and got over my shyness, and and a matter of fact, I've been to his house. I've met, you know, known him for years, and he passed away a few years ago. And but he's uh, George Shumway Publishing Company, uh, is, I think, is still in business, and uh, they have published many, many really good works on the Kentucky rifle. So uh, if anyone's interested, please use remember that name. Um, in in his in some of his books, uh, I thought it was interesting that. There's some quotes in here that I think is worthy of mentioning. So man's work of art is an act of God. Uh, art is an expression of one's spirit. And uh, I thought those two th quotes are kind of thought-provoking because I think when people produce art, they're trying to say something. They're trying to express a, something they can't maybe do with their, any other way. Or express an emotion. Uh, emotion and... and uh, they're, they're trying to tell a story, maybe, or express something. I think that's... Uh, Madison Grant, in his book on the Kentucky Rifle Hunting Pouch, he said that there was no counterpart for self-expression in the muzzle-loading rifle and its accoutrements. And I thought that was an interesting quote. Uh, some of the earliest known books about the Kentucky Rifle are Captain uh, John G. Dillon, who produced uh, the first work that I'm aware of in 1924, um, and then we talk about uh, a fellow from York, Pennsylvania, who George Shumway knew very well, Joe Kendig, Jr. Uh, his pioneering work on the Kentucky Rifle, to me, is probably the pivotal book for collectors today. Uh, that's where most of us started because it's like the Bible of the early Kentucky Rifle. And he looked at the rifle as an art form. Uh, he wasn't as interested in the history as he was the workmanship and the art that he saw produced in it. Uh, in 1942, Walter Klein, who they named the National Muzzlehugging Rifle Association Range after, produced a book called The Kentucky Rifle Then and Now. So um, it has a long, and there are literally hundreds of books today published. So they're not, you know, if your person's interested, there's a ton of stuff out there. Um, there's organizations called the National Muzzleloading Rifle Association where they have a shoot every year, spring and fall. As a matter of fact, I think next week or two they'll have the spring meet at uh, Friendship, Indiana. Uh, there used to be, and I'm sure they're still active, the Corps of Kentucky Long Riflemen. Uh, we have a Kentucky group. We have a Pennsylvania group, and there may be some other states that are doing that as well. And the organization I belong to called the Kentucky Rifle Association, which is a uh, organization's been around a long time. Um, this is the for people who collect and really study Kentucky rifles and their history. Uh, and then another uh, really neat organization worth mentioning is the Contemporary Long Rifle Association. And this organization has their annual meeting in August in Lexington, Kentucky at Rupp Arena. It's right in the middle of August, I think 14th, 15th, 16th, somewhere in there. And you will see rifles being produced today probably better than they were ever produced in 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 America uh, anytime I mean there's some real craftsmen out there 
and people that have taken it to a art, art level to a to a different to a different level than we've ever seen. Um, I want to talk about more regionalism, states that produced these guns. So we know we started in Pennsylvania. Well, back up just a third. We've talked about this before. So these people that manufactured guns, they would have an apprentice. Yes. And they would teach them, and then they would transfer them. Yes. And then it would kind of continue that way. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, the apprentice usually worked four or five years for a master. Now, a lot of guys got passage from, from Europe to America and indentured themselves as an indentured service servant, excuse me, and they would work for, like if they wanted to go into the gun-making world, they would go to a gunmaker and, and become an indentured servant. They would work for room and board for four years. At the end of that four years, if he was ready to go out on his own, he was to be provided uh, a, a set of tools, the clothes, to, to go out and start his own business, pretty much. And a lot of them did. Apprenticeship was key to the... To the uh, training of these young men there was no other way there were no schools so the only way you knew how to learn was under the master that you worked under and uh, so we'll talk a little bit about more about that later but since this is an uncommon history of the south podcast we're going to primarily talk about the southern states that that where rifles were made basically i don't know of any state in the south that didn't produce kentucky rifles in the southeast except maybe florida and I, d- I wouldn't say they didn't. I just haven't personally ever seen a rifle come out of Florida. Now, sure as I say that, somebody will produce one, and I hope they do. So, so if a gun was manufactured in Tennessee or Georgia, it was still called a Kentucky rifle? Yes. Okay. Well, in, 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 you know, each state, there were regions within each state that you see the difference in workmanship. Okay, well, I wanted to get into that a little bit for those that uh, are interested, but... For example, Virginia uh, was pretty early in the evolution of the rifle. So you see some of the earliest rifles that came out of that region, and then they moved over into West Virginia. North Carolina, because of uh, Salem area, Bethabara, they had produced some of the earliest Kentucky rifles. And then you saw that craftsmanship spread down into South Carolina along the coast of Georgia. And then when you get to the mountains, Brian, the rifles started to change. And that's what we, one of the one of the key things that we've learned in this over the years is the regionalism of how they look different in different areas of the country, how they're made different. They can be functionally good in a lot of places, but they look very different. Now, in Tennessee, for example, and in the mountains of, say, western North Carolina, um, in east, southeast Kentucky, that region, you'll see iron-mounted rifles. You say, well, what do you mean iron-mounted? Well, well, that's what I was about to ask. What do you mean by iron-mounted rifle? Well, the, the trigger guard, the butt plate, the side plate. Now, a patch box was put along the butt stock in order to hold grease patches to put on the bullets to make them load easier and more accurately shoot. But the iron mounts was there of practical reasons because that region of the world produced more iron than any other place. Well, that makes sense. So they're going to use what's common to them easy accessible right. to them. Well, if you were if you were making a brass trigger guard like you would here in Kentucky, we had iron furnaces here, but not as many in the central part of Kentucky as we did in eastern Kentucky or maybe even the far western Kentucky. But 
the, the bluegrass region of Kentucky, for example, and many other places like this, mostly used sand cast brass as their mounts. They would make a mold in sand and everything. Well, it actually takes a lot longer to make a mold and pour a brass trigger guard than it would to just pound one out of iron. Because I can tell you from experience, it takes a while to polish a trigger guard and file all the casting imperfections out of it. It takes longer to do that than it probably would be for me to forge one out of iron. Really? Yes. That's, so I wouldn't expect that. Yes, that kind of surprised you. Uh, the barrel making was the same pretty much everywhere, forged out of iron, you know, bored, sized, and rifled, and, and the flats ground and filed, and tremendous work, tremendous lot of work. Um, but as you move west from Kentucky and then you get into Arkansas, Missouri, and especially when you cross the Mississippi River, you just don't see much rifle making done in the old Kentucky rifle traditional <laughs> way. So you ask, you know, what does a Kentucky rifle look like? What is it? <laughs> that's, a, that's a hard question to answer. Um, a Kentucky rifle is a long, full-stock rifle usually, but some of the later ones were actually half-stock, and they still call them Kentucky rifles. Um, the earliest guns were a flintlock mechanism where a piece of flint hit a frizzle and set it off. But then the later ones, they were made in percussion system when that was invented, about 1820. So they're still considered Kentucky rifles. Now, at some point, as a collector, we look at them like if they're probably after about 1840, they start become sporting rifles, and we no longer consider them Kentucky rifles in the old sense because they've lost everything. They got shorter. Uh, by the way, a long barrel Kentucky rifle, you know, 44, 46 inch long barrel uh, is pretty long. It comes up to, I'm six feet tall, comes up under my nose. So when you were loading it, you were looking right straight at the muzzle. But the German guns, the gunsmiths, those guns had really short barrels. So all of a sudden when they came to America, the barrel got two feet longer. Was that due to them having to hunt and game, being able to have farther distance? or? Well, you know, Brian, I, this, is a, this is a really good debated topic. Now, you know, you get a bunch of us Kentucky Rifles yeah. guys together and we have fun with this. Well, my feeling is simply that after 36 inches of length, Ballistically, it really doesn't make any difference. Would so, they have known that in those days? Yeah. Oh, yes. Now they knew a whole lot more than we, you know. Let me tell you, I, that, oh, these guys they knew stuff. But I think there's a practical answer for it. And I can simply say this: try to load a real short barrel gun on the back of a horse. Now you try to load a muzzle-loading rifle on the back of a horse, and you just try it. That's the most awkward thing you'll so ever with the try longer to do. Barrel, they could you set, the saddle, it on, set it, set on, it the on the ground. And, and load it. Okay. Well, that would make sense. That would now, another thing is that the plane of sight, the longer the barrel, the longer the plane of sight, and the natural pointing would be, uh, I wouldn't say a whole lot easier, but it would be more probably a little more accurate because you have the extra distance that a short barrel gun, you would have more room for error. Does that make sense? Yes, that does. Well, I can't hardly explain that exactly, but if you if you held the two up, you could probably see that. 
So even describing what a Kentucky rifle is now, the real early guns that we made that used in the Revolutionary War and so forth, you know, we don't, nobody has trouble saying that's a Kentucky rifle, but when they get into the 1830s and 40s and they started changing into the sporting rifle, um, and some of the guys that made sporting rifles weren't trained in the Kentucky rifle tradition, so they didn't make the, ever make them. So the Kentucky rifle is, is pretty much a product of... Well, did a, a new influence come in from outside to convert over to the sporting rifles, or was it just, just the technology te- of the technology. time changing? Okay. Yeah, technology. Um, and and the and I think we 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 tend to forget economics played a huge role in this. Um, some guy said, "Well, if you only need thirty six inches to get ballistics, why are you doing? Why are you wasting all that time and effort making them four feet long?" So then he said, "Well, why do you put all that wood out there when you could do half that and not waste so much wood?" And then you know he said, "Well, why do you want to fool with that old flintlock mechanism when I can have a percussion mechanism that's better in the rain, maybe?" Right. I don't think they're that much better, personally. I've had I've shot both in, in, in bad weather. A flintlock, if it met, if it misfires, you can clear that pan and, and dry it out pretty good. Uh, but if it's pouring down rain, I don't think either one of them are going to go off very well. Um, so trying to describe a long rifle is... Uh, well, that is also had something to do with their hats, too, right? They had a longer bill in case it was raining. But did, I've heard that. Now, is there any truth to it? You know, because the, the hats that... They would come out further. It was supposed to be over their, where all their powder and stuff was when they were firing their rifle. It, it, it certainly wouldn't hurt. I or was that a wise, old wise tale? That, I don't know. I wouldn't rule that out, Brian. You, a lot of times there's, a, you know, I, I haven't heard that, but uh, that would make sense. I think if we saw a lot of the log hunters of, of the early period, uh, they wore hats. They didn't wear coonskin caps. I think, right. I think that's a bit of a myth. Um, now, here's the important part about the Kentucky rifle in American history to me is I don't think we'd have won the Revolutionary War without it. I really don't. Um, and I think it uh, played a key role. I wouldn't say we wouldn't have won the War of 1812. But, um, you know, it was used early, as early as the French and Indian War. And, but in the Revolutionary War, the British came in with their Napoleonic tactics you know, line of, line of men with smoothbore muskets that weren't very accurate, but they produced a high volume of fire. And, you know, um, the, the Kentucky riflemen could get back 150, 200 yards from these guys and just eat them alive. And they couldn't do a thing about it. You could shoot a musket. A musket will reach 100 or 200 yards. You just can't hit nothing. You know, you, you couldn't hit a five-gallon bucket at 50 feet hardly, let alone a man at 100 yards. So if you hit him, you're just lucky. But a Kentucky rifle, a 100-yard shot is, hey, that ain't no problem. No problem at all. For a guy trained with a Kentucky rifle, I'd say 150, 200 yards is probably not a real stretch. And they had sharpshooters uh, during those wars as yes, well. Yes, and, so. of course, you know, there were several incidents in the Revolutionary War where the Americans got in. Well, you know, anybody seen the movie The Patriot, you mm-hmm. know, Mel Gibson? Yeah. As a matter of fact, his rifle was made by a friend of mine, Frank House, and uh, in the movie, and uh, that uh, that uh, gives you an example of how how effective it was. You know, he could get back and just wreak havoc on them, and they couldn't even get, get close to him. So the Kentucky rifle, in, in Harold's humble opinion, I think we wouldn't have won the Revolutionary War without it. Uh, 
Now, the War of 1812, I, I, I don't know. I know it was very effective, especially in the Battle of New Orleans, where the song we talked about, where it got its name, came from. But uh, the musket, the British musket, uh, or any musket anywhere, was not effective against the Kentucky rifle. It just didn't, it didn't, it didn't work. Um, the regional differences we, we touched on a little bit, and I'll, I'll go back to. Now, Brian, in, now I'm going to surprise you. Uh, we have these regions of Kentucky rifle making, like, like we talked about in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and so forth, and spread into Kentucky. In Joe Kendig's book, posted in 1960, he said one of, one of the highest art form rifles in there. Would you like to guess what state it was made in? Well, I'd like to say Kentucky, but uh, I don't. I'm going to say Kentucky. Well, uh, Georgia. Georgia. Gentleman, my mate of Wiley Higgins. And at that time, when Kendig produced this book, he did not know who he was, he didn't know where he was from but we do today. And, you know, there are, there are some surprises in this world because, for example, Wiley Higgins made some tremendous high-art rifles, probably some of the finest known in America uh, for, for an American product. Um, and in Tennessee, uh, you had Thomas Simpson, who produced some of the finest rifles made anywhere. And this was, you know, probably in the late 1780s. 80s, 1790s, and so forth. Um, you had in Kentucky, you had the Bryans. Um, you had Jacob Bryan. Uh, Bryans were from Lexington, Kentucky. Same family, Bryan Station. Station. That's William Bryan and his son, Daniel Boone Bryan. Daniel Boone uh, was his uncle. Um, they produced some really fine rifles. They call it, we call it the Lexington School. And in Bardstown, Kentucky, we had the Jacob Riser School of gun making. There were several gunsmiths that worked under him. They were from the Cumberland uh, Valley region in the Maryland. Um, and in Tennessee, you had several families that produced iron-mounted rifles, really high-quality, well-made, beautiful pieces. For me, personally, a gun does not have to be highly decorated to be very desirable. I look at architecture of the gun first. I look at how it's laid out or the design of the buttstock in relation to you can hold a rifle if it doesn't sight well, then it's not worth having. I mean, you, you know, people don't realize, but in early pioneer times, you really didn't have time to take fine aim. Is that where the term Kentucky windage came yeah, from? Yeah, we're going to talk about a few Kentucky terms here. Okay. But uh, you, you pointed quickly. If you were in Indian Territory or if you were in a hot situation, you didn't sometimes didn't have time to aim. You pointed and shot. And so that, that rifle coming up natural, grabbing, coming right to your face, hitting just perfect. They went to a great deal of effort to make sure that rifle fit that person because that's, that's very important. And when you see that from a distance, when you look at that rifle, stand back and look at it, then I can see that in the rifle. I don't have to even put it to my shoulder to tell you probably. So you're saying that um, the, the English and Irish and Scotch and everybody come in here had to shoot really quick at my, my great-grandfather, Chief yeah. Big Feather, because yep. he was going to get them. Yep. There were times when, when they knew that qu quickness was more important than a fine bead. You know, uh, if you look down that long barrel and you've got him in your sights at 50 feet, you're going to hit him. 
You know, you know, you don't well, really. Nobody. Have they must have all been bad shots because I think he, he died of old age. <laughs> he might have been quicker than they were. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it, the the regional differences is is one thing that that we we're starting to make a lot of progress on. Um, this was very slow in coming. Uh, for about the last ten years, I know here in Kentucky we've made great strides in identifying some different schools. And what do we mean by school? We mean we had one guy that came into an area that produced a rifle with a certain look that you don't see anywhere else, and then a bunch of apprentices that worked with him or people around him, not necessarily apprentices, maybe people trying to compete with him or whatever, and they produced a similar look. And so anyway, we, we, we really get into that. So that's part of it. Um, from the evolution of the sporting rifle, um, it's when it began to die. Um, the Kentucky Rifle probably uh, – Do we know who the last well, let me say this gunmaker was of that era? Well, it, um, now in the region of Appalachia, things held on for a long time longer than anywhere else. The Civil War was a hard thing on rifles in the South because the demand for weapons for the Confederacy – a lot of them asked them to bring their old rifles in and use the barrels for muskets and things during the war. So we lost a tremendous amount of those guns during the Civil War. And you got to imagine this, you know, from a Revolutionary War, say an early Kentucky rifle, do you know how many wars it went through? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you could you could go from the, from the Revolutionary War to the War of 1812. If I didn't get it, then you could get into the Black Hawk War or the Mexican War. Uh, and then there's a, what was the other one, the... There's another one, the Seminole War. So there would be, you know, if, if that run stayed in a family, the chances of it surviving was very, very slim. So we are very fortunate to have what we have from some of the earliest guns. But a Revolutionary War era Kentucky rifle that has survived is an extremely rare thing. There are not many that date that early. But in the, in the mountains of Kentucky and Tennessee and western North Carolina and Appalachia, they continued on making these rifles. Uh, well into the 1900s. And they changed. They were lighter caliber, smaller bore, you know, long skinny percussion guns. Uh, some of them were half stock. But uh, there were people that carried on the tradition. And like I said, there's probably more being made today than than's ever been made. Did we, but do we know who the last gun maker of that area or that tradition and style, who would have been if you take out the Eastern Kentucky you think of it, come back to me later. Yeah, I'm trying to oh, – I know him well. He uh, – oh, gee. And then I'll I put you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, I should, well, I should have mentioned him anyway. Hacker Martin. Hacker Martin. Hacker was the bridge. He was in, uh, I think, uh, Virginia and uh, maybe Tennessee, but two places. He ran a mill, and he did gunsmith work, and he built rifles, and he had an apprentice. And Hacker was the guy that kind of bridged over – the the old timers into the new modern era and he lived in a time where you couldn't get anything other than the old original stuff there weren't any suppliers you know dixie gunworks in union city tennessee was one of the first suppliers of muzzleloading gun parts you know and he started turner kirkland started that like in the 1950s so you know that kind of became the place that we all started getting parts and things from when we wanted to build our own oh, that's neat yep and then i want to end brian with a poem uh, about the Kentucky Rifle. 
and it was written by Colonel William Lightfoot Vischer. It's called The Rifle in the Hall. From the days of Boone Kenton in the dark and bloody ground to the days when homes and gardens in the bluegrass land abound. Since it was sent its laden messengers to bring the savage down, we have blessed the good old rifle of Kentucky and renown. It is long, it's grime and rusty, and out of date its lock, and tarnished are the mountings and brass upon its stock. But we love the old ancient weapon resting high against the wall, that old Kentucky rifle on the buckhorns in the hall. By the date and the letters graven on its butt, we understand that our grandsire with its master and in his sturdy hand. It cleared the way for progress through many a savage fray to where it is dumbly hanging on the buckhorns there today. Though trial and the wilderness, his faithful guard and guide, t'was cherished by that hearty soul, and t'was his boast and pride. Now among the rich bequests he left, the dearest of them all is the long Kentucky rifle on the buckhorns in the hall. That's, that's amazing. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Uncommon History of the South. Make sure to check back with us next week when we'll have a new podcast. This podcast was created and produced by Harold Edwards and Brian Wolfman.